Good morning, Crossroad family. Um, anyone else notice it's been a really past rough couple of weeks? Or rough past couple of weeks, I guess I should say? Anybody? I, as I was writing this sentence here, uh, there had been three hate-driven mass shootings within the previous 11 days. On, the, on Saturday, I'm going to move this down, it's really loud. Uh, on Saturday, March, uh, May 14th, there was a young man who was a white supremacist and a Darwinian racist, and he went on a killing spree targeting black men and women in Buffalo, New York. The very next day, while we were still shocked by this, uh, a man who was, happened to be a Chinese man who hated people from Taiwan uh, went to a Taiwanese church in California and began to shoot people there. And then last Tuesday, uh, as we're all aware, a godless young man walked into, um, he hated himself and others, and he walked into an elementary school and he decided to murder nearly two dozen people, mostly second through fourth graders. And, uh, and this, this act was so evil and so perverse that I know two different families that are friends with our family decided not to send their kids to the last day of school. They just couldn't, they just couldn't do it. And I understood. And I started wondering the same Tuesday if I ought to put aside the sermon uh, that I was working on and write a different one. And then I had two conversations within less than 24 hours that convinced me to do just that. Uh, the first was with a non-believer who at, at least professed at one time to be a believer. And uh, the second was with a, a dear sister in Christ whose, whose faith is, is taking a hit because of the events in the world that are going on. And uh, in both cases, there were similar questions about God. And, uh, and I realized while trying to respond that maybe a lot of us are dealing with the same issues, the same concerns, and most of it boils down to why is God allowing terrible, awful things to happen in the world? You know, why isn't he doing something about it? Why do people suffer so much? Especially little children who reap the terrible consequences of other people's evil choices. And so the question in short is, where is God? And this is a very real question, a very valid question, and I think it's worth trying to answer, even if imperfectly and incompletely. Connected to that question is another one that's perhaps equally important, although it's not asked nearly as often. What am I supposed to do when I can't see him? And there's a lot of other related threads, you know, that, that come from this train of thought, and they too plague believers and unbelievers alike. But if you'll hang with me for a little while today... And I hope that you will. I hope that you will. If you will stick with me, with the help of Scripture, maybe we can find some encouragement and some hope, even if we can't always make sense of what's happening. So if you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Our main text for today is our opening passage from this morning, which is Psalm 42. And before we tackle that big question up there, we're going to tackle this other one. Okay, we're going to talk first about what am I supposed to do when I can't see God? 
And of course, almost any Christian would say, you know, we'll seek Him, right? Spend time in the Word, spend time in prayer. Those are definitely true answers. And I'm not trying to take anything away from that, okay? But sometimes I think we feel like we need something more specific. When our sorrow is, is really deep and we want an answer that maybe we feel like has some more meat to it. And so, so that's, where, that's what we're chasing this morning, something a little more specific. Uh, let's pray before we start reading. God, I just ask in Jesus' name that you will keep everybody engaged this morning. This is a, a question that is scary. A lot of people think, you know, are we supposed to ask questions like this? Well, Lord, we're in good company because a lot of folks in the Bible ask the question. And the problem is not the question. The problem is if we come to the wrong conclusion, I pray today that each of us comes to the right conclusion based on your word and based on your Holy Spirit's work in us. Make us good soil, Father, so that the, the seed that's planted takes root and bears fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, some of you probably recognize this first verse from a really old worship song. Well, I say really old. It was probably the 1990s, so it's not really that old. Uh, but um, it, he says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And so right out of the gate here, we, we, we have this, he appeals to this vivid illustration from nature. You know, you can see a, a picture up there, but just, you know, picture this in your head. You've got a deer, maybe one that's, that's running from a, a hunter or a predator, shaking with fear, and, and you know, that, that, that aftermath from the adrenaline dump, you know, and suddenly realizing that it is exhausted and it's thirsty, but it's in an unfamiliar wilderness. And it suddenly realizes it's deeply thirsty, but it can't hear the trickling of a brook. It can't smell the dampness of moss. It doesn't know where its water is going to come from now. And unlike you and I, most animals, they, they, can't, uh, they can't dig a well, right? They can't, not that any of us have had any experience of that probably, but, uh, you know, they can't hold a shovel. They can't go just turn on the faucet. They, they can't build a canteen to carry their water with them. And so to drink the water, they have to go to the source. But what if they can't find that source? The psalmist is comparing himself with that deer. This psalm is in itself, it's a, it's a prayer of passionate longing. It's addressed to you, O God. And thus it's a prayer. His soul is panting for an interaction with God, and he clarifies the living God, or a real person, not an, an impersonal force or, you know, or an apathetic idol. And he cries out, essentially, when will I get to see him? I think it's important to note that we Christians must maintain a sincere desire for God, no matter how present at hand or distant he may seem. We need to maintain a sincere desire for God. And I know sometimes that's easier said than done. But rather than becoming bitter or jaded or worse, uh, you know, losing your faith, keep striving after Him. You are not alone in wondering, uh, you know, whether you're, whether you're going to get to see God again. There's, you're really in good company. If you look in the Scripture, you see David, Job, 
Habakkuk, Jeremiah, so many of the heroes of the faith went through a time when they asked God, where are you? But they didn't give up. They didn't give up, and that's why we're able to read their stories today in Scripture. We know that their desire was rewarded. God himself shows up when we wait. Let's keep reading. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where's your God? Why do you think the psalmist was in mourning? Why, why was he weeping day and night? I mean, it, it's unclear, although many people, many commentators anyway, believe that this psalm was written uh, for the sons of Korah or to them by David when he was being pursued by Absalom. Uh, you may remember that story. In case you don't, David had been, he'd been given many promises uh, by the Lord, but since, since then, he'd committed this terrible sin of, of committing adultery and then having a husband killed. And since then, you know, he's fallen under judgment, although the Lord says, uh, I forgive your sin, but you're still going to reap the consequences of this. And so now, years later, David is running from his own son who's trying to kill him. We can only imagine the depth of sorrow that David was experiencing as a result of this, this sin, his sin, and the sins of others. And it's magnified, right? When the world points out that, that you know, God seems absent or, or when they say, well, God just doesn't care. But even so, I believe the Christian heart should grieve over sin, starting with our own. Starting with our own. We should grieve over sin. I mean, be aware that this will put us in a position to be mocked, right? Because he said, they say to me all day long, where's your God? It puts us in a, a position to be mocked and to have all of our own failures, both as individuals and as a church, right, put on display. I mean, after, after hearing about the, the shooting Tuesday, I posted on Facebook, we need repentance as a nation. God have mercy on us. And a friend of mine put a laughter emoji on it. So I messaged him. I said, why would you put a laughing face on this post? And his response, this is verbatim because it had nothing to do with God and everything to do with man. Repentance won't accomplish anything. Like, honestly, how do you believe in a God that lets that happen? Makes no sense. Dude, we are on our own. End quote. Of course, the conversation continued, but that's, that's the, the part I want to share with you. In the midst of our grief over tragedy and evil, the devil is going to try to use people to tear down our faith, but we can't let that happen. We must understand that God himself is also grieved by evil and tragedy. But the question follows, then why does he allow it? And, and this, again, is a part of the big question, right? Where's God? And we're going to get there, okay? But for now, just, just let's, let's stay focused and be encouraged. Let's be encouraged by the fact that grieving over sin is one of the ways that we see the Holy Spirit's work on, on us, in us. When we grieve over sin, it's a form of suffering that helps us to become more like the Lord. I truly believe this. Okay, we're going to keep reading. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. That, that's a really powerful expression. Okay, we're going to kind of come back around to that. But how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. See, when God, when he can't see God, the psalmist would recall his past joys in the Lord. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. And then he recounts leading a, a joyful procession, I mean, basically like a traveling worship party. That's what he's talking about here. 
And he's pining for those days when he felt God's presence so closely and so deeply. When he wasn't plagued by the spiritual drought. Can anybody identify with that right now? I think we're supposed to do the same thing. I think we're supposed to remember the times when a worship service was so powerful that it brought you to tears. And remember those moments during toe-stomping messages when the Holy Spirit was convicting you of your sin and of God's mercy. We should remember when He rescued us, when He saved us, from a dark day, when He revealed Himself in the midst of our pain. We should remember our seasons of repentance and the times that that we've cried out to God in the mysterious and powerful moment of your baptism into Christ's death. Remember these things. Instead of looking back and thinking, why isn't it like this now? Look back and think, God, I am so thankful that you gave me those moments to give me strength for times such as this. We're going to read on. Uh, At this point, the psalmist comes to kind of like a chorus or a refrain uh, that repeats at the end of the song. He says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. And this is kind of weird, I mean, but it's, it's a nifty choice for the writer. He, he goes from praying to God to giving himself a pep talk. And if y'all have been here, you know, very long at all, then you, you know I'm not a fan of, you know, pat yourself on the back theology. Just last week, I was sharing how dangerous the therapeutic gospel is, you know, the so-called gospel, and, and how Christians should not presume that we have the authority to call things into being, seeing as how that's God's prerogative, but it is still absolutely appropriate, friends, to encourage yourself. You can do that. That's okay. Okay? And the reasoning for this is threefold to my mind. Number one, filling your mouth with encouraging words typically requires filling your mind with encouraging thoughts. And that will include scripture as well as pleasant memories of God's goodness like we mentioned above. And that can boost our faith. That can can lift up our our faith and our ability to persevere. It's pretty important. Secondly, our minds are rarely neutral, if ever, okay? And if you're not encouraging yourself, then you might be actually discouraging yourself. It's usually one or the other. Just, I want to make this clear. This isn't about like boosting egos or, uh, or, or, or maintaining our self-esteem. It's about survival, okay? Number three, it's about obedience. It's about obedience. God wants us to focus on Him and His, His promises, not on us and our problems, right? Our circumstances and our fears, that, that's not what we're supposed to be focused on. We're supposed to be focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So don't be afraid to encourage yourself. You know, when you're having a, a trouble feeling God's presence, that's not idolatrous. That's obedient faith building, okay? Okay? All right. Okay. And remind yourself, you, you will, again, praise Him, your salvation and your God. Okay, reading on. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. 
Okay, I'm not going into a geography lesson here. Just, just be aware that these three places that he names are a, quite a ways from the psalmist's home, which is apparently Jerusalem. And the location isn't that important except to show that he's writing these words while displaced, while he is, he is a refugee, essentially. And yet he's turning his thoughts toward God rather than toward his present situation. I, I think there's an instructive truth there, you know? When our soul is, is cast down within us, we ought to turn our thoughts away from the dangers and the troubles and focus on God, like we said just a minute ago. And it helps us especially to recount why we trust Him. I mean, the psalmist, he's experienced God's redemptive power before. And by the way, so have you if you're a born-again believer, right? You've experienced God's redemptive power. And so it only makes sense that we would turn our thoughts to Him when our circumstances appear bleak. We know He can save because He has. And if you think about it, to, to the Jewish person, Jerusalem was, was where the temple was, and that was, that was God's home, like for lack of a, a better term. And, and well, most of them, they probably understood that God can hear our prayers no matter where we are. They're still, they still envisioned Him as kind of living in Jerusalem. And so to be far away from Jerusalem would have made it feel like God was far away, not just spiritually, but, but physically, like, like proximity-wise. And sometimes for believers, I think we feel as though God is far away. And we make it worse for each other when we make comments like, you know, if God feels far away, guess who moved? You know, that's one of those cliches that we, you, know, you see on posts and memes and stuff. And I think, I think that makes sense most of the time. But it's not universal. We know from Scripture. Scripture tells us there are times when God tests His people's faith. And it doesn't mean that He has left them, only that He's remaining hidden for a time. He does this. So we may be seeking Him and thirsty for His presence and, and, and struggling with the fact that sometimes He lets us get a lot thirstier before He satisfies us. But, but, but He knows what He's doing. God knows what He's doing. The thirstier you are, the better the water tastes. So let your thoughts turn to him in the midst of pain and grief. Uh, verse 7 says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. This may be the first concrete sign in this psalm of God's present grace, and it's powerful. I love the phrase, deep calls to deep. Some of you poet-hearted people get it. <laughs> Have you ever stood behind a waterfall? Yeah, I mean, even a little one, right? Okay, fine. Have you ever watched Last of the Mohicans? <laughs> At least you, you know the scene. Stay alive! I will find you. If you've ever stood behind a waterfall... You know that the power and the sheer volume of water just thundering down is immense. It's incredible. You ever been out in the ocean and you dive in and you swim down as far as you can go, but you can't see the bottom? You know? A little scary. This is the kind of imagery that the psalmist is invoking here. It's a limitless, exorbitant power that washes over him like a flood, like ocean waves. But he's not referring this is so cool. He's not referring to God's judgment or his wrath. Instead, he's talking about the Lord's steadfast love for him. 
By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Friends, listen, we need to learn to be immersed in his grace. Back to the water metaphor for a minute. Anybody ever tried to surf? Or maybe body surf? Got a few? Okay. Even even if you're in close to the beach, every so often you're going to get clobbered by a breaker that just, you know, it comes out of nowhere. It just knocks you silly. And you get disoriented under the water and you're not sure which way is up. You're just being dragged along by the force of the wave until you finally break the surface. I want to encourage you, friends, to think of God's grace like that. Only instead of filling you with panic, let it fill you with peace. Because despite the turmoil around you and, and not knowing which way is up and the, the total inability to control anything, God's love is present. That's His wave that is carrying you. And you know that His word promises in Romans eight twenty eight. I forgot to put that in your uh, bulletin insert at your little... Additional scriptures, but Romans 8, 28, one of my favorites. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. See, the psalmist recognizes this. And and he sings about honoring God through praise and prayer. But then the mood shifts again in verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? It's like, whoa, that... That's kind of a different sentiment from just a minute ago, right? You know, one of the reasons I love the Psalms so much is because I totally identify with their bipolarity. I mean, really, and some of you know it, too. You get it. Because sometimes the Psalms seem manic-depressive. It's human emotion, folks. It's real is what it is. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? In other words, where are you, Lord? Why aren't you defending me? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where's your God? There's that, there's that mocking question again. Yeah, I mean, it's frustrating the psalmist to the point where he, he's, it's almost like he's saying, hey, God, if you're not going to stand up for me, would you at least stand up for yourself? Would you make defending you easier, God? And sometimes it seems like we're in that position, doesn't it? We want to defend God, but we're struggling because of the things that are happening around us. But here's something I hope you'll take to heart. Okay, if the Psalms, if the Psalms are holy scripture breathed out by God, which we believe they are, and if they were literally written to be sung, meaning that these questions are actually intended to be a part of a song sung by other people, you know, I think it's probably safe to say we don't have to feel bad about having these questions. You know, I know some of you probably grew up in a household or a church that insisted it's wrong to have doubts or to ever question God, but you got to admit it's biblical to question God. I named a bunch of examples earlier, mainly Old Testament folks, you know, the, the prophets and... And, but the Psalms have plenty of them too. And, and if you're stuck in a where is God moment, then I think Scripture encourages us to express doubt and discouragement to Him. To Him, that last part is key. 
express your doubts and discouragement to him. And we're going to camp out here for a bit, okay? So I want you to stay with me on this. You know, nudge your partner next to you, your, your spouse, wake him up if you need to. Y'all, listen, this is, this is truth, okay? God is big enough to handle our questions. He can take it, okay? God can do that. Sometimes he answers us. Other times he says, none of your business, you know? God can do that. He has that prerogative. Sometimes he takes a long period of silence, and then he says, I'm not going to tell you. Sometimes he asks his own questions. Look at Job 38 through 41. That's okay, you know, that God tests us, assuming we pass the test. But see, here's the thing. God gives us the ability to pass the test. You know, 1 Peter says that it is by God's power that we are being guarded by faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. It's not our strength that keeps us in Christ. It's His. But anyway, it is okay to struggle with doubt. But don't just talk to one another about it, okay? Express it to God. And it's okay to wrestle with discouragement, but don't lie down in a grave and just, you know, drag the dirt up over yourself. That's not how we're supposed to behave as Christians. Tell God what you're dealing with. Talking to um, my brother Brent the other day had a great word of wisdom for me that I think the Lord gave him. We were, we were talking while we were out walking around one day, and, uh, and he reminded me of when, I capitalized he, you are not God. He reminded me. Of, of when Elijah was running from Jezebel. You guys remember this, right? For some reason, you know, this is right after he just called down fire from heaven on 900, you know, or I guess it was on the sacrifice, and then they took out 950 prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth and whatever. So he should be, like, riding really high on this, but instead he's got Jezebel saying, I'm going to get you, and he's like, oh, and he goes on the lamb, you know? So, so he's fleeing from Jezebel, okay? And he goes to God, and he's just so broken up about everything, and he's just he's so down on himself. And, and he, he says, as far as being a true follower of the Lord, he says, I'm the only one left. And what did God say? Nah. Nah. I've got, I've got 7,000 others that haven't bowed the knee to Baal, bud. You're not alone. God says, I got your back. And then he gave him the strength to continue on his mission. And Isaiah says, that, look, the Lord knows our frailties. He knows we're just dust. We can trust God to reveal what we need in order to maintain our faith in spite of what we may sometimes see in the world. Often, though, the problem, it's not with our own personal issues. You know, it's what we see around us. Sometimes that's harder because we see, we see people who are just about as innocent as mankind is capable of being that are paying for the horrific sins of others. You know, things like Buffalo and Uvalde, sure, but there's, there's plenty more that's not in the headlines. There, there's, there's sexual assault and physical abuse and starvation is rampant in the world. And even in this country, you want to hear something that will blow your mind? Okay, well, while each of us should rightly be crushed by the 19 children murdered last Tuesday, did you know that more than three times that number of preborn children have been intentionally killed in the womb since the beginning of this sermon? Can we possibly find in our hearts some righteous anger against that heinous evil? 
Why are we surrounded by victims of other people's wickedness? I mean, it, it's sad. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to fit what we know about a sovereign and loving God. But here's a thought. Here's a thought. What if God allows children to suffer for the sins of wicked men and women because it's one of the only ways to get our attention? I am not pulling this from Scripture. This is my own thoughts and opinions. I want to state that up front. I'm just saying this, okay? When someone suffers consequences for their own sins, we just nod our heads and go, ha, serves them right. You know, that's why the instant karma videos are so popular on the internet. We just go on with our lives. You know, we, we think that's how justice should work. But when we see injustice happen on such, so grand a scale, the only way that it makes sense is if we can believe that one day the scales will be balanced. to hope the wicked will pay for what they've done. And this is really appealing to us until we realize that every last one of us is wicked. We're all wicked. We all deserve death and hell. But God provided a way to satisfy His own wrath against sinners by sending His Son to pay for our sins, for all of our sins on the cross, and then rising from the dead. His mercy, the mercy of God, is lavished on anyone who truly is born again through faith in Him. And that is wonderful news. That's good news for us. But, but it does raise the question, well, what about the people that commit abominations, right? I mean, we, is, is it fair that all they have to do is repent and believe and they don't burn in hell? How can a just God allow some of these atrocities to be forgiven? That's what we want to ask. That's what we want to say. Well, first, here's the first answer. The same way that your atrocities are forgiven and my atrocities are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's first. But secondly, God's mercy and God's goodness is revealed most beautifully when He converts the vilest of sinners. You know, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton, was a slave trader. We talked about that a little bit, about how that word wretch, some people are trying to take it out of that song. Perfect descriptor for me, folks. And think about the Apostle Paul for a minute. I want to share with you some of his own testimony about himself, okay? Regarding Christianity in Acts 22, Paul says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. A few chapters later, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, that's forced attainment, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, that's murder, right? And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, that's torture, and he goes on to say that he even went to other cities to torment followers of the way. You talk about awful. But then God got a hold of him. And we see Paul's amazement at God's mercy in spite of his sin. In 1 Corinthians, he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In Galatians, he admits to not only having persecuted the church of God violently, but even that he tried to destroy it. Listen, that's the bride of Christ he's talking about. 
You want to experience the full wrath of a man? Try to hurt his bride and see what happens. And yet God, God's patient. God forgives. Later in the letter to, to Timothy, that same Paul thanked Christ for using him, though formerly he says, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he says a very famous passage, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, God's goodness is revealed best when he takes the man who is most spiritually depraved and makes him a new creation. So God can do this to whomever he chooses. Should we, should we hold it against God that he is merciful? Or should we be thankful that his mercy extends to a wretch like me? To vile sinners like each of us. That brings us back to the last verse, which is the repeated chorus. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil against me, or within me? Excuse me. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I think these words serve as a reminder of where our hope really is. It's not in mankind. It's not in ourselves. Certainly not the government. You know, where is our hope supposed to be? Our hope is in Jesus Christ, whom God sent to free us from both the penalty and the power of sin. Remember what we read earlier this morning from Isaiah 53? It, it says, he, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our, our, our iniquities. He bore our punishment, and by his wounds we are healed. That's amazing stuff. But let's not forget, right before that it says, He has also borne our griefs. It says, He has also carried our sorrows. You know, God's not, he's not just a creator who, who sets everything in motion and then sits back and just dispassionately watches us wreck the world. The old watchmaker fallacy. That's not who God is. He loves us so much. He took on our sins. He took on our punishment. And he takes on our cares. The word says, cast your cares on Jesus, for he cares for you. I mean, do you, do you believe that? Do you? Do you believe that even if we can't see him? I do. In light of all that's happening in this world, can our faith survive? Yes. Yes, it can because of where God is. This is where we're going to come back around to that big question, where is God? Scripture answers in three ways. They should matter, all three of these should matter deeply to every person in this room. Okay, all of them are very comforting. All of them can give us hope in different ways. First, God is near to the brokenhearted. That's honestly one of my favorite sentences in the Bible. It becomes more dear to me the older I get, I think. It's half of Psalm 34, 18, which uh, I believe Christy read earlier this morning. The Lord 
is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Well, good, because there's a lot of brokenhearted people. In the world today, there's a lot of anguish, anxiety, depression, fear, brokenness, people who are spiritually crushed. And do you know what? It doesn't specify that he's only near to believers or nice people or people of a specific political affiliation. It's just, it says, people that are brokenhearted. God loves them, you, me, us, and he's near. I think sometimes God uses a broken heart in the lost person to bring them to salvation. So he's near the brokenhearted. Secondly, God is in his people. And this truth is repeated over and over in the New Testament, but but one of the clearest is in 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul says, do you not know that, that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? And in context, you know, he's instructing Christians to refrain from sexual sin. But, but the premise holds, okay? As stated elsewhere, the same spirit that is in you is the one that rose Jesus from the dead. So we can be encouraged by the fact that, that God has given us himself. It, it says by, by the guarantee of his spirit in us that we'll make it through this world if we continue in faith. So he's near the brokenhearted, he's in his people, and God is on his throne. You know, in the book of Revelation, we see the majesty of God who, who is, is all along sovereign over the affairs of earth and men. He's, he's shining like a fiery jewel, and he's reigning over all of creation. And in chapter 19, we see his son, Jesus, returning to earth with his, his faithful writing behind him, witnessing as he dispenses final judgment on those who've refused to repent and believe. For those who would not seek his mercy, justice will come. So if you're waiting for justice, just be grateful that you'll see it one day. Justice will come. Scripture says that Jesus' robe is dipped in the blood of his enemies, and we know that is not going to be pretty for those who ultimately reject his grace. So I want to I encourage you here to, to accept his offer while it's still good. Because when you're done, you're done. It's the free gift of forgiveness and salvation, along with the capability of becoming more like Jesus in this life and in the next life. All you have to do is die. Die to yourself. But it's worth it because then, when it really is the end of all that currently is, the following words from Revelation can also be greatly encouraging to you as they are to me. John writes this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. How how awesome is this? He himself will wipe away every tear. No more death, no more grief. John says, and he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty 
I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Did you catch that? To the thirsty. And so if you feel like that, that deer from the psalm, pursued and exhausted and displaced and parched, God offers life to you freely. You just have to be ready to drink. And you had the opportunity today, uh, and, and, you know, whether it's for the first time or the 50,000th the time that you recognize you need God's grace, come play in the fountain. And this morning, if, if, it's, if it's on your heart that the Holy Spirit is, is, you feel it, and you're like, you know what, I know I have not made a public profession of faith. I've not gone through what Scripture tells me to do, which is to be baptized, as, you, as the Word says, and to, to share my faith in Christ with others. If you haven't done that yet, I challenge you and invite you to do it today. And if you've already done those steps and you just say, you know what, I'm, I'm just really struggling, man. The world's falling apart around me. I need somebody to come and pray for me. Um, we had a brother last week who was courageous enough to ask for prayer. You can do it too. We need each other, folks. God's got this family for a reason. And all across the world, we got people who are very different from us, the way they look, their culture, everything else, who love Jesus, and they are our brothers and sisters too. We are connected. Let's be in prayer for one another. You have your opportunity this morning, um, whatever the Holy Spirit's leading you to do. So there's a bunch of stuff up there. You can read it, uh, and thanks for your time.